Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an online fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I'm glad you're here. This episode is sponsored by Sion. I will be sharing with you a little bit more about Sion in this episode, but until then, you can look them up at seon.io forward slash demo. If you got the chance to listen to part one of my conversation with Gil Rosenthal, you are in for a treat to listen to part two. If you haven't yet listened to part one, you are missing out because I think most of the people, if not a very good chunk of them that did listen, reached out to me over this past week saying, wow, that was really good. I couldn't agree more. Gil quickly became someone that I really enjoyed talking to about high-level fraud issues. We were introduced to each other by a mutual friend this past summer. And one of the topics he talked to me about last summer that he was starting to see as he worked with multiple fintech companies was this new-ish version of identity fraud slash synthetic ID theft that was really impacting a lot of institutions on the financial side. So whether it is traditional banks, card issuers, fintechs within crypto or bill pay or just running the gamut, any type of company that is providing credit or accounts, especially around money, they're being targeted with this. And he was kind of the first person to talk to me about it. But since then, I legitimately think that this topic has come up with everyone on that side of the world that I've spoken with in the last few months. It is really crippling fintech. And if some of them don't realize it, so sometimes they'll say, well, we have a, our biggest issue is credit charge-offs or, you know, people not paying. But then when I suggest that they dive in a little bit more and do some manual analysis on those accounts, almost all the time they're coming back saying, oh, you're right. Our systems just didn't catch it at first. And the most unique issue with this problem is that it kind of has a trickle-down effect in a negative way within the payments ecosystem. Because once a payment instrument is provided and granted to someone, they can then impact other elements within the payments ecosystem, specifically CMP merchants. If you've been seeing an increase in friendly fraud chargebacks over the last few months, this could be why. And we explain that and go into that within the first half of the episode. I also think it's you know really important just to remember the importance of multiple layers in your KYC and your fraud process. Gil talks about that in detail. I, there's one specific quote that I pulled out that I think I just want to have framed somewhere in my office. Uh, and he said, when there are so many links in the chain, it's easier for fraudsters to find the weakest link. I think the biggest goal we all have is to have the company that you work for not be that weakest link. Uh, 
Prior to diving into part two, there's just one more thing I want to mention that's pretty timely. If you listened to last Thursday's fraud news episode, you heard me talk about something that multiple merchants within various verticals have been talking about over the last month, and that is that they've been seeing this pattern of fraudsters using the correct data elements for cardholders within e-commerce transactions, so email addresses, billing addresses, etc., so that they can look as legitimate as possible, especially for companies that are have integrated within their automation system some kind of identity verification, identity data verification tool. So an outside source that can kind of triangulate the validity of the email address. For instance, oh, this email address does belong to this person that's named as the cardholder, and that email has been seen in the wild over the last five years. Often, some fraud systems would uh, value that quite high. Well, when fraudsters get that information, that can make the transaction be auto-approved much easier. I had kind of hypothesized that I thought I knew the answer, but I still didn't feel very secure with it because it wouldn't have explained why this rapid information from multiple merchants all at once, right? If it was what I thought it was at the time, we probably would have been hearing this for months before. I was trying to figure out what the tipping point was for starting to hear this kind of all of a sudden. Well, over the weekend, Vice released an article uh, talking about how fraudsters are now selling access to TransUnion TLO reports. This could very much explain why they know who the or what the email address, phone number, address, and other identifiers are for their victims. It may not be the main reason, but it certainly can explain a lot. So I will be diving into a lot more about that on this Thursday's Fraud News episode. I will also be talking about some predictions for 2022 as promised, but make sure that you're subscribed to Fraudology so that you can be alerted as soon as that episode is released. I've already received multiple emails after posting about this on LinkedIn today, and so I will have a lot to discuss later this week. With that, I am going to stop this intro so you can listen to the brilliance of Gil Rosenthal, and I will look forward to speaking with you on Thursday. I am joined by Gil Rosenthal again, and I am so grateful for you for coming back for part two, Gil. Thanks so much. Happy to be coming back, Carice. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Yeah. So on the last episode, we talked a lot about your experience, especially last year with the PPP funds and working in a B2B loan service. And you've definitely with your experience at PayPal and Bluevine and others, you've got a lot of fintech experience in risk management and fraud, et cetera. And I really wanted to have you come back and talk more about this newer trend that you're seeing on the fintech side. And interestingly enough, we really nerded out over this via Zoom recently. And since that, I have heard bits and pieces about this. And I always am like, oh yeah, that's what Gil Rosenthal was talking about. So I'd love for you to share with listeners what you're seeing, the types of fraud you're seeing target fintech, it kind of is like Franken fraud, right? Like Frankenstein, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Can you share what you're seeing and, and how that plays out? 
Yeah, I think so. I think the most interesting trend I've been seeing is relating to how easy it is for bad actors to get access to to a card, mm. basically, or to or to a financial instrument, bank account or or credit card or debit card. I'm talking mostly about the U.S. market because that's mm. where my expertise is. But yes, um, <laughs> I do think that that there's a good chance that this applies well beyond that scope. So when I talk about getting access, I'm not talking about stolen cards. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about opening a brand new bank account or a brand new credit card by a bad actor with a stolen identity or sometimes with their own identity, but those are abusers and, and mules and things like that. It, a bit to the side. The place where I see the most problem, accounts and cards being opened with stolen identities that we're talking in the definitely tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of such accounts being available in the market, probably right now. Wow. And so when those are opened and not detected, then there's a lot of issues downstream, right? Yeah, exactly. So it, it like, there are a lot of different ways to use these type of accounts. If you're um, a merchant or a retailer, the, an interesting place where you might see it is in abusing BNPL or abusing your own, your wallets and your benefits and your private label program, cards, reward programs. Oh yeah. Anything, anything like that. These, because these accounts are becoming cheaper and cheaper, you, you can use them for different types of abuse, but the place you would see a lot of this and you might not expect it is in your chargeback. So when someone opens a bank account with a stolen identity, they are the ones, they look like they are the owners of that card or that bank account. So when they use those accounts, usually they use them with stolen funds, but it takes the bank or the credit card time to figure out that, the, that these are bad, act, bad accounts and shut them down. By the time they do that, if, if those cards were used online or used in stores, it's very easy for them to then basically say, that wasn't me, give me my money back mm -hmm. and, and, and risk it, right? Because the worst thing is someone will shut down this, this card and they don't care, right? Because right. They, already used, they already used it once. It wasn't mm -hmm. their money to begin with. And if they win the chargeback, they get to just, they get to do the same thing over again. So if it they prolongs put the account longer, right? So just to kind of, so make sure I'm, I'm tracking here. So if a account with an issuer or a payment method or, or whatever it is, is created with stolen identity and not caught, then a lot of times prior to recently, that account would only be good for like a month or two. And then they won't, they're not going to make a payment on that account. So then it becomes a charge off or delinquent. And sometimes the banks will review it again and go, oh, well, this was synthetic ID. This is identity theft. Other times they'll try to send it through the you know, credit process and not get it back. In this case, you're saying, and I'm seeing a lot of evidence that this is happening. And this is why I really wanted to like put an exclamation point on this for the merchants that are listening, is that you're seeing bad actors open stolen accounts with a bank or a payment method. And they will use that at retailers online often. And then when the bill comes, instead of paying it, they may issue chargebacks to prolong that account. 
And so when the merchant's looking at it, it looks like friendly fraud because all the information matches up. Exactly. So if, if I open a, let's say a credit card under the name Tom Jones, mm-hmm. and that's a stolen identity, from the merchant's perspective, when I make my purchases, I look like I am Tom Jones. And that Tom Jones I'm, is verified at that address. You're, you've I, done all that exactly. legwork to get that account, right? Exactly. And then if I file a chargeback, from my perspective as a fraudster, I get the $200 I used. I get to use them again a second time. So the, mm-hmm. I'm really incentivized to file that chargeback. From your perspective as a merchant, it really looks like Tom Jones friendly fraud chargeback. So yeah. you will classify it as friendly fraud and not as actual fraud. And because I know some merchants treat those fraud classifications very differently, mm-hmm. um, that that can become really painful over time. Yeah. Um, so that's it's something- frustrating on the merchant side, right? Because it, that the act of fraud actually happened on the banking side. And so at that point, it's like, well, the bank allowed that account to be open. I did everything I could to verify that that person exists with the tools I have because the fraudster was good at, at creating and establishing that identity to be tied to a specific address and to a specific email, et cetera. Then the merchant's on the hook because of the liability rules, right? And there's very little if any, collaboration, whether it's information sharing or data collaboration between the banks and the merchants. So it's like, well, how we don't know what is happening. We don't know what the left hand is doing, right? But the right hand is in charge, is liable, financially liable for what the left hand is doing, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I I mean, I can tell you from, from, banks and fintech side it's, yeah. it's also very frustrating it's not like right any, anyone there is having a good time and laughing about this it, it's a very painful topic but i it's it will be de- definitely very frustrating if you've done everything you can mm-hmm. and you you verified the card 100% the card is being used by the person who owns that card right it's it, it's only it's still a bad actor i think there's a lot of what we do and fraud relies on the, that common trust yeah. in, in the ecosystem. And when there's a vulnerability in one place, that can easily bleed out throughout the ecosystem. So I really, I really think this is something worth paying attention to and being aware of because mm. um, in a lot of ways, the market forces are almost like geared towards a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. For this type of attack it's it's really a situation where um where and i think you spoke about this very well in a few of of, of the recent fraudology episodes and i think i mentioned last week like i'm an avid listener so i really uh, appreciate that but but i think a while ago you, you talked about how people are reacting to different bins and to different routing numbers and what Robinhood is doing and, and all of these things are tied to each other yeah. in many ways I, I definitely think that, that it's important to understand that there are a lot more issuers in a way, mm. like card issuers or financial, financial institutions now than there have ever been. Yeah. And a lot more of them that are accepting online applications. So uh, a lot of small banks have, in regional banks have moved to accepting dig- digital online applications. And, mm-hmm. and account openings. 
there's a ton of new fintechs opening up all the time. Yeah. And in addition to that, a lot of the tech industry is trying to build it so that almost any tech company that has the ability to do that could also be a fintech company. Meaning yeah. that the, the infrastructure will be there and the ability to build this. And there are providers in the market, some of them quite good, but mm-hmm. there are providers in the market that that's what they do their business on is if you want to have to issue out cards or to have a bank accounts under your company's name, they can help you set it up in weeks. Yeah. But if you're in, if you don't know how to manage fraud for bank accounts, you might not be ready in weeks to yeah. prevent the fraud attacks that are coming. And I'm seeing a lot of fraudsters who are the earliest adapters. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. I literally just wrote that down in my, yep, on my notebook. Fraudsters equal early adopters is what I wrote. They really are. They're going to be the first ones to try anything new, but especially when it comes to digital currency and digital banks and neobanks. And to your point, not so many of them are focusing on ease of use and ease of sign up an account. And I've talked about this too, where, and probably better even than I do, the measure of so many fintechs, as well as any startup of Silicon Valley or others that are VC funded is growth. And so there, the majority of the company is focused on that growth and making things easy and not always thinking about how can we be used for this. And 
to your point, I, I've really been focusing on the trust in the ecosystem over the last, you know, several months because we're noticing it, right? Like, like you mentioned with Robinhood saying, hey, we're no longer going to accept bank accounts from these specific banks. It's because they don't feel like they can trust those banks to do the due diligence. Now, you and I both know people at those banks and we know it's much more complicated than that, but that's where there's starting to be breakdowns of, of trust in a lot of different ways. Exactly. And I think if we couple that with just the amount of breaches that have happened mm-hmm. over the last, let's say, five years. And it's not just or, the amount of breaches, right? It's the type of breaches, right? Yeah. What information is is compromised and out there? Yes. I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that one in three people in the U.S., their identity is compromised and <laughs> is available online. Yeah, it's probably conservative, unfortunately, in, in the U.S. Yes. So in, in that type of situation, the, the ease of doing mm-hmm. this is creating, creating bank accounts with stolen identities is just ever increasing. And if when one fintech plugs a hole or when one regional bank figures out how to prevent mm-hmm. some of these bad actors from creating accounts, they just jump over to, to the, the next, next one and to the next one. And when you have hundreds of, of financial institutions, it becomes a lot easier to start mm-hmm. manipulating the system. Yeah. Yeah. You're so dead on with all of that. I think you're absolutely right that it's the perfect storm between, you know, fintechs just growing and, and boost. it feels like there's a new digital bank like every day. And I think that there's you know good and exciting things about that. I do I think that disrupting the you know traditional bank makes sense for where we at we're at technology and and consumers etc. However, to your point, there's a lot of you know, banks traditional banks have spent decades were you know trying to keep up with the digital migration and have learned some very painful, expensive lessons over the years that these fintechs and new banks haven't. Side note, I I don't know if you watch Billions, but uh, you're reminding me of how Bobby Axelrod, one of the main characters this last season, his biggest, and I hope this isn't a spoiler alert for anyone, but the biggest drive for his hedge fund was to acquire a small digital bank to get a bank charter. Like that was like the thing. And so a lot of people are doing that, right? And the fraudsters are loving it because they're all talking to each other and, and figuring out how they can exploit all of this. Yeah. I, yeah. I also, to, to be like fair to the fintech industry, some fintechs, some neobanks are doing an amazing job. Absolutely. Uh, yes. And are, and are leveraging like high-end, top-of-the-line vendors mm-hmm. have extremely strong teams they know exactly what they're doing and and some some don't and it just when there are so many links in the chain mm-hmm. it's easy for fraudsters to find the weaker links and that creates a lot and then it's also important to remember because I, I think for if we're thinking what can you do about this i think mm-hmm. it, you've mentioned this a few times on the podcast before I, i've definitely been preaching this you have to look at routing numbers you have to look mm-hmm. at the, Bins, they, yeah, that they are a part of your risk profile. It doesn't mean you should shut them down, but you should be tracking them. You should be monitoring them. I, but I definitely think that people should be aware that also this is a lot more volatile. So it's not like 
if someone is bad today, they're going to be bad for the next three years. It could mm-hmm. be that in a three month turnaround, they're going to shut down fraud on their side because right. the other side of it from a bank's perspective is that, especially for, for fintechs and neobanks, they're working with sponsor banks. Sponsor mm-hmm. banks are, being, are, are regulated entities in the United States. And they are very concerned about allowing too many bad actors into their right because they're underwriting their partners, right? The banks or the fintechs that they're sponsoring, they're underwriting that. So, but also from a regulation perspective, they're getting the fines. Yeah. So once that there's a a spike that becomes more apparent to the sponsor bank, there's a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. that comes on pretty quickly on these neo banks on on these fintechs to turn things around pretty pretty fast. Mm. So a lot and a lot of times they do because this is too like like this is both sad and and in a way comforting is that this is not yet super sophisticated fraud mm. but they're their stolen identities they're not being used in like extremely sophisticated manners. I've seen like IPs mismatching the identity completely at, at, from a geolocation perspective, like phones that don't correlate with, with the identity in any way. Other types of manipulation, they're pretty easy to spot once you start looking Once for you it. have the right technology or you have the right eyes looking at it from a manual perspective. Exactly. So right? once, once companies start caring about that more, that they have a lot of tools to start employing mm-hmm. and they can turn it around pretty quickly. Um, yeah, but so I think if that's one thing merchants can do is, is just be, be mindful of routing numbers and bid. Yeah. Looking think, for patterns on those. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, this is less related to chargebacks, but in, in wallets and buy now pay later systems, mm-hmm. and systems, sometimes you're reviewing the actual funding instrument, it, the card, the bank account. And, and you're trying to assess assess it. A part of that is also, I think, should be done in a similar way to what we as fraud fighters do with emails. Mm. So when you look at an email, you don't we don't just think, does this email seem to match the identity? Yeah. We also think, does this email have age? Is this yes. e- does this email does this e- has this, does this email belong to this identity for a long enough time? So I can mm-hmm. trust it. Yeah. And, and if you apply this, if you apply the same logic on bank accounts, that really reduces the risk. So mm-hmm. if this, if a bank account or a credit card has existed for 90 days, 180 days, 300, like a year, mm-hmm. your risk level starts dropping significantly. If there has been significant activity in it already, along with that, even, even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are vendors who can who can provide some of this information. I would say for ACH, there's there's two that I know of that are are pretty good. For credit card, that's much harder for merchants to verify. There's one vendor I know of that that I work with that does have an element of that where you can it's a peer to peer network and and it's anonymous and it's very secure and and privacy focused. Blah blah blah. But they're able to tie the payment instrument to the customer for over time using peer data. And that 
but that's the only one I know of. I did work on a project for a few years ago trying to do that. And I've talked about it a little bit before on the podcast, trying to connect issuers and merchants to each other to share some of that information. That project did not take off for leadership reasons, but but also there were a lot of a lot of hurdles, especially because when it comes to credit cards, the card brands want to be the nucleus of uh, the nuclei, whatever it is of the, of that cell. And so they want to be involved and, but they're not providing that information. The closed loop card brands, Amex and Discover, they do have programs that allow retailers to know the name of the cardholder, but Visa and MasterCard, it's a little harder without those specific vendors, but just throwing that out there that unfortunately that's not something that's super common. There's only one I know of that can do it and they're fairly new ish at it, but they're doing, they're having some great success, but that is a really good tip, right? Knowing if you are able to know the combination of the name and the card or the name and the, the bank account and how long it's been seen in the ecosystem, that's that's the golden ticket to me, which is a big reason why I work with that vendor, but yeah, my vendor agnostic policy, which is why I'm like talking around it, but, (laughs) but yeah, but, but I agree that that's, Mm -hmm. that is extremely strong. And Mm -hmm. even I I can tell you that for, for, in some of the, for some of my clients and Mm -hmm. some cases, I recommend that until you know better. And if, if you can't make a judgment, then, then treat, the treat the account as somewhat more suspicious doesn't mm. mean stop their activity doesn't yeah but but be more cautious and in, in the handling of it mm-hmm. just because there are chances that it's compromised and if there are other elements that tell you that this is an extremely low risk account great yeah awesome right. but but that's something to take into consideration that if you don't have like don't blindly trust that just because the the card is the card gets like a good matching to the name and the address mm-hmm. the name and the zip code or the the bank account seems to be in the name of the person who's signing up that that those are going to to prevent fraud from happening because this is becoming such a widespread phenomenon right and i will say i mean to your point, even if you can't verify the payment method to the people, there are other indicators, right? I I know that Sion is the sponsor of this podcast, and I know they provide verification information as well from various parts of the internet in a, in a unique way for one of their products. And so not meaning to plug them, but it just kind of naturally comes up where that is an option and, and they do a really good job of it. Going back to these identities that are being created, I definitely have seen them for sale all over the place by fraudsters, right? Whether it's on YouTube where they're bragging about it or they're talking about specific methods or Telegram or Discord or others. Are you seeing it? And I think there's not a right or wrong answer. I'm just curious. I think there's either a case where there are specific entities or fraud rings or groups that are just doing nothing but harvesting these accounts and building the credibility of these accounts and then selling them. Or are you seeing it more where it's all under one roof, where one person or entity are creating the accounts and monetizing them? Or is it a mix? (laughs) So I've seen attacks that uh, I'm fairly certain were one, and I've I've seen attacks that I'm fairly certain were the other. Because in some cases I've seen, some cases I've seen the attack was an account was created, immediately monetized, created, immediately monetized. Right. And it's very clear that the accounts are being created by 
either fraudster is using the same method or the mm. same fraudster. In other cases, I, I've seen accounts that get aged for a, a pretty significant amount of time. So we're talking between the account opening and the monetization event, a few weeks. Now, mm. on the banking side, some of that also has to do with actually receiving the debit card. So um. you, might, you might open an account and then wait for the debit card to arrive. But, but in, in at least some of the cases I've seen, I'm fairly certain that what was going on was that someone was mass opening and then, and then passing it along to other fraudsters who were use, using them. And you could, can see that you can link the account openings mm. to, like, to a single entity. That what that used either the same IP or the same email pattern or things mm, like that. Mm -hmm. But then the monetization splits into three or four or five different patterns. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I that makes complete sense. And I'm I'm definitely seeing that both too. Where but I do think that this fraud as a service concept is definitely a part of this perfect storm yeah. where there are people that are just getting really good at one area or they're selling tutorials or methods or those things. And, and you're right. The fraudster will meet whatever bar you set. So if, and I think that's what you mean when you're talking about like how they're kind of easy to, to spot that happened a lot, especially like towards, you know, the beginning of my career in e-commerce as well, where the fraud wasn't sophisticated, but it was death by a thousand paper cuts. It was so much, right? I mean, if you actually, if you knew what you were looking for, you were able to figure out a system or a process or a tool or technology that, that would stop that behavior. But then they'd come up with new ones and new ones, and they're still doing that. But I feel like in fintech, it's important to have a bar so that they at least have to work for it. Uh, because the harder a fraudster has to work, the less you have at the top, right? It's like a pyramid where there's just so many at the bottom that have those low-level skills or know how to follow a method or a tutorial, but the people who can really navigate all the hoops, they're going to be fewer, but can make a bigger impact. Yeah. I, I also think, and, and this is something I think other guests on your podcast have also mentioned in the past. Some of them are people I actually worked with in the past. And I think it, it like probably taught me this approach, but um, the, the way I view fraud is that it's it's trying to make the the act of fraud cost too much for the fraud mm -hmm. for it to be worth their while. Yep. And yep. that that's a combination of money and time. Yeah. But if you're if you're adding defenses, you're increasing the cost of fraud. Mm. They need to pay more in order to get the same value. And the better you get your defenses, the more expensive the fraud needs to become. And mm. at some point there's a tipping point where it's no longer worthwhile. Now there are two tipping points. One is when it's no longer worthwhile to use you mm -hmm. and then they'll just move on to someone else. Right. Using the same method that they did to yeah. exploit your systems. Yeah, exactly. And, and the second tipping point, but you're still exposed. It's just this fraudster has, and that with this method can, can find someone somewhere else to go to. Mm -hmm. The second tipping point is when it's like the, the amount of effort and cost of committing the fraud outweighs the value of the product or the funds they'll be able to, to get. Mm. And at that point, like you basically should stop seeing fraud in your system. That the second, the second point is really aspirational. Mm. I, it, I think it's very hard for 
large businesses who are working in, in a for-profit for environment to try and get to the second point. Governments, yeah. that's where governments should be aiming for, right? So if you try employment and, and yeah. other pieces, uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. And th- things we talked about the previous episode, mm-hmm. and, but, but also just getting a, a, a fake social security card or driver's license or the government should aspire to get, get to a point where getting those is more expensive than what those things are worth. The, in the private sector, it's a lot more about that first stepping point of just be better than the competition. So fraudsters will leave you yeah. and go to the competition. I, I often use the metaphor for you don't have to be faster than the bear. You have to be faster than everyone else running from the bear. Not that I want the bear to even be there, but the bear is going to be exactly. part of life. And there's just so much right now with the, the perfect storm, as you put it, like the it's not worth it for them yet. I mean, right now they're making so much money. They're not going to just reform. I think I absolutely subscribe to the same thing. I think that the X factor, the balance that every, whether it's a retailer or a fintech or a bank has to balance is the business, right? And we could obviously stop hundred percent of the fraud and, and put in enough to make it not worth their time or effort by stopping all sales or stopping all account yeah. openings. So the balance is how do we make sure that it costs the fraudsters too, you know, too much effort and time without impacting the good customers from being able to use your service, whatever that is. And you and I both know it's possible. We both you know there's a, so many things, gosh, technology's come so far in the last decade and a half, especially that you can do so much behind the scenes where the customer doesn't even realize there's any review or, or impact at all. But also I think as a consumer, and I'm obviously not the average consumer, but I appreciate those hurdles. And that's the consumers in Europe, they, they want to have 3D secure. They want to be answering those verification questions, et cetera, because they feel safer. So maybe yeah, one my- day we'll get there. I don't think the U.S. is getting there anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I think the best example for this is I, I was on a business trip back in I think probably 2012, something mm. like that. And, and I used a new device on a business trip to access my 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 Gmail account, my personal <laughs> Gmail account. And I got an email from Google. Mm-hmm. Like, and or I got a text message, sorry, from Google. Yeah. To, to a different device basically telling me we see this suspicious login into your device. Now it was me. Yeah. But I, I was so happy by that. Yeah. I, I felt like they identified. They're protecting your account. It makes sense to me that it's suspicious. I am protected. And if someone else will try to do this, You'll they will spot message. it. Yep. Exactly. So, so hmm. this, like when, when it's done well. And, yes. And it can actually increase customer yeah. trust, which there is. There are a lot of studies that show customer trust. I mean, it's a currency, right? It, when a customer trusts your brand, whether it's a retailer or any of the verticals or a bank or a fintech or you know crypto or whatever it is, they are going to spend more. They're going to be more loyal. So you and I are hundred percent on point there. And I've, I use that a lot in, in projects, et cetera, where I'm saying I'm from, I'm aware of who pays my invoice. It's your good customers. That's also what is going to make you guys most successful for your brand long-term, but you can do both. You can increase customer trust and keep them safe 
while also keeping the bad guys out. I think too many people, however, think it's an either or. It's not an and. Yeah, and and I think I think we have come a very very long way on account takeover. Mm. I, there are amazing vendors, <laughs> there are amazing products. Multi-factor authentication is now extremely acceptable, yeah. not just for the industry, but also by, by pretty much all customers everywhere. So I think that made a lot of difference. I think in account opening, hmm. there's still a bigger gap, yeah. uh, both in terms of, of the available information and in terms of the available product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think too often companies are quick to give customers the keys to the kingdom because they're oftentimes the perspective of who your customers are gets painted with a broad stroke and a brush, right? So the marketing team will tell you that your customers all make multiple six figures and blah, 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 blah. And then you're saying something else. And so they're like, we want all of those people. Well, yeah, so do I, but not they're not the only ones applying, right? They're not. So that's just one example that I had once, but quick to think that to give them the keys of the kingdom. And to your point from earlier, what if we were to say, well, from a FinTech perspective, and I know some of the BNPLs are doing this now where you have to earn the ability to have more on your balance or, or more credit available or more abilities to transfer funds or, or other things like that, making it more dynamic than just black and white. But do you think that Fraudsters are moving. I mean, ATO is always going to be there, but to your point, there are a lot of good technology and indicators that can be looked at and reviewed from an automatic perspective that it's getting harder for fraudsters to do that. I mean, they're moving more towards phishing and targeted phishing attacks to try to get that rather than credential stuffing and others. Are you seeing the, the balance from account or kind of the pendulum swinging from account takeover to account opening being the higher risk on the fintech side so to to be like or to be transparent i'll, I'll say that most of the uh, companies i've worked with both, both in my professional career and now as a consultant uh, are in the hyper growth stage mm. of, of time where where there's probably more account opening than yeah. account takeover anyway right um, mm. but Having said that, I, I do think that it's in a way easier at this point. So when I was working at PayPal, one of the things I would look for all the time is that just like I had Google alerts on lists that would say hack PayPal account. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you just see every once in a while, here's a list of, of hack PayPal accounts that just goes on, goes up online. I think the MO we're talking about now is a good way around that for fraudsters of if I can't yeah. get a hack PayPal account, I'll just create or, or not PayPal. Right. Any of them. Else. Right. <laughs> I'll just create, I'll just create accounts with fake identities mm -hmm. and then, and then monetize those. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's kind of what I was getting at too, is that we get good at plugging the holes in the boat on one place and then they go back to another, but to your point, it's the hyper growth stage of fintechs. It's the wild west of, of building it quickly. And it's the, <laughs> just the massive amounts of data out there. Uh, 
I think a lot of people think, and, and I was under the impression for a long time that when data is stolen or breached, it's kind of one and done. They, they use that and then they just kind of toss it and move on to the next. What has been happening the last several years is these criminal organizations are literally building databases. And anytime they get a new password to attach to an email or a new data point from another breach, they're adding it to, you know, these massive databases for consumers. And that's terrifying. Yeah. I, I also, I, unlike cards or emails, I, identities yeah. don't get wiped out just because they had fraud ones. They're, right. they're still the same identity. And I've seen, not, now that I'm consulting, I've seen the same identity come up in, with fraud in different companies four months apart. So wow. where one company fully identified it, flagged it as fraud, did everything right, but there's no one database where you can go to and say, oh, this identity has been flagged for fraud. So the same identity can be used again to open a new fake bank account four months down the road, eight months down the road, a year down the road. Because so, every entity uses, if they're using a consortium, they're probably using different ones, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do recommend using consortiums. And yeah. for, that really does help identify some of these cases. And I think can be also helpful for merchants and retailers. Yeah. Because these identities are being used multiple times. And like you said, at least let's set a bar. And, yeah. and if that bar is, if you've used this identity once, Four months ago, make another one, right? Yeah, it's going to cost them more time and money. I'm, I'm with you, and I, I know who you're referring to. That I, well, actually, I mean, I'll just say Uri Arad was on the podcast last uh, season, last year, and I believe you worked under him at PayPal, right? And it's very much his school of thought, and I, and I'm with it a hundred percent that it's not necessarily we're going to stop it. It's that we need to make it not worth their while. Yeah. Ori it was definitely one, one of the like brilliant people at PayPal when mm-hmm. I was learning what fraud is. And yeah. Yeah. He, he's brilliant. I'm jealous that you guys, you and our friend Galit and, and other people got to learn from him and work directly from him at the beginning of your career, because man, that would be like a master class in fraud, as well as Noam Nevea. He's he created fraud sciences. He's brilliant as well. And it just yeah, me <laughs> make me feel like I'm in elementary school sometimes. I gotta have a really awesome conversation with both Uri and Noam Noam last year. And I felt like the dumbest kid in the room. And I think I was, but like I was just soaking it up. <laughs> yeah. I, it- yeah, I, I think I, I was very fortunate early in my career to join mm-hmm. like, uh, to, to join a group of, of very, very brilliant people. And they had to be because PayPal, like you said, right, they they definitely had early adopters and they've been open about it. So I feel like then, but you guys had to step up much higher than a lot of other people did. So you got just a crash course in the foundations of you know, preventing fraud and identifying and preventing it. Whereas a lot of us were self-taught. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bumpier road, <laughs> but still getting to the, getting to the same points. But I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this because like I mentioned before, 
I've been hearing bits and pieces of this for the last several months. I, in various conversations I've had, especially with people in the fintech side, whether it's digital banks, there's a, there's several people who are leading fraud teams for digital banks that were on the e-commerce side. So I still keep in touch with them. There's definitely the internal struggles that a lot of them have in trying to convince the fintech in the hyper growth stage to whoa, 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 let's hold up. We need to put some, you know, things in place can be exhausting and, and challenging for sure. But a lot of people are noticing, wow, it's not really identity. It is identity theft and it is just straight account opening fraud, but it's at a different level. They're definitely creating these identities and knowing what things they need to establish over time to make it look like a real person. And that is becoming a huge challenge from crypto to BNPL to digital banks to investment companies, whatever it is online and digital, this is the other half of the coin that needs to be considered. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also appreciate you coming on. I'm sure there are a lot of merchants that are freaking out now about this, but a lot of retailers have seen friendly fraud go up quite a bit. And I think my advice from a chargeback perspective is to fight it as best you can and to, you know, demonstrate that you did everything you could to verify the identity with the tools that you have. That's the best thing. If if it's a high dollar certainly go back. And I think it's episode 19 where I talked about arbitration and considering that and what to consider and and how to proceed. But I've definitely seen cases where the, and I've brought on, been brought on on some of these cases to like fight one-off really high level, high dollar chargebacks. And this is more account takeover on the banking side, but where the AVS matched and, and the shipping and billing was all going the same. And so the merchant did everything they could, but it appeared like it was account takeover on the banking side. But I think that this is kind of a call to action for everyone to be first aware that this is happening and to, to be vigilant and to hopefully that the other pieces within the ecosystem are going to step up this new year and not be the, the weakest link in the, in the chain. Yeah. I, I think that that's fair. I, I also think similar to what you've been saying for for the past almost two years now about refund fraud, right? Uh, it's, once you know that it is a thing, yeah, it becomes easier. And yes, to identify. And, and that there are ways and there are tools that can help limit your exposure to this type of an attack to, to take it into consideration in your decisioning. So this is not, oh my God, the, the world is going to fall apart. Right. This is a it's a thing that is out there. Be aware yeah. of it. it. Be vigilant. Yes, hundred and ten percent. I that is something I live by, and that is important to me. Is at the very least, know it exists. Right, knowing that there's a problem is is half of it, and then the other half is understanding the problem. But I definitely am seeing a huge tipping point from mid twenty twenty to now, where the landscape of fraud is shifting. And we've been through this before with EMV, for example. And then in addition to EMV happening around the same time, the breaches were changing from card numbers to identities. So we've been through this before, but I think it's really important for people to not think 
that there is one way that fraud looks right. And, and know that there's different MOs to look for and different things. And to whenever there's something new, I, my first thing is just, let's, I want everyone to know about it. Of course, I want to tell them how to solve it very quickly, but I mean, that's the consulting side of me, but knowing it is half the battle. That's all those words. That was really what I was trying to say. (laughs) I, I, I fully agree. (laughs) Well, Gil, I'm so grateful to you for coming on for not one episode, but two. And uh, I'm really grateful for your friendship. You have a really keen insight into fraud that I appreciate. And I know that your clients really enjoy working with you. I know some of them and they speak very highly. I, as you continue your journey of advising and consulting with fintechs and other similar companies, what types of projects do you enjoy working on and how can people reach out to you? Yeah. So, so I think generally I, I enjoy helping. I enjoy being helpful. Mm-hmm. So, um, Anywhere where I, I can provide help, I, I love doing that. We share that. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I consult on 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 uh, mostly to to early stage fintechs, but that's where I think I, I add the most value and I have the most to contribute. And I also really enjoy the kind of zero to one or one to two type builds. So that that's where that's what I enjoy the most. But I I do both fraud and credit consulting and yeah, but generally if I can be helpful, I want to be helpful and uh, happy to uh, talk to anyone that thinks uh, that might be the case. Mostly people can just find me on LinkedIn in very early stages of, of consulting. So I don't have a website, don't have anything. But you're that. doing just fine without it, which <laughs> is enviable for sure, <laughs> but speaks I, well to your, just your skill set and your knowledge and experience. That's really beneficial to the companies that need it most right now. I, I uh, appreciate that. That's very kind. I, I hope that is true and will stay true, but yeah, you can, anyone can reach me in LinkedIn and I'll include it in the show notes for both episodes for sure. Awesome. Thank you very much. No, you are so welcome. Thank you again for joining me. I, what people don't know is we've had like multiple hours of conversations that aren't recorded that are similar to this, just nerding out on fraud and we both enjoy it. And I really appreciated the introduction from our uh, mutual friend Galit several months ago when you were first considering going out on your own and really appreciate your expertise and knowledge and encourage people to reach out if they have questions. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me and I will talk to everyone soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.